So that song was written in 1971 in the midst of all sorts of division and chaos. Our nation was embroiled in a war taking place in Vietnam, and just a few years after Dr. King had been assassinated, Marvin Gaye asked the question, what is going on? And at this season of Christmas, we're celebrating how God brings hope to all nations. That's what Christmas is about, that God would enter time and space, that he would come to be with us, revealing himself as a human being, so that we could become agents of change and bring hope to our nations. So as we head into Christmas, we're looking at the lives uh, and teaching of Jesus and how that has impacted people that have made an impact on our world and how we can become agents of change as well. Uh, When you ask Austin, who are the most influential people of the last hundred years? Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa top the list. But what people respect and admire about them is the areas of their life where they actually lived out what Jesus taught. Now, we're not doing this series to teach Christians about Gandhi or Dr. King or Mother Teresa, but to invite those of you who are on a spiritual journey who might have deep admiration and respect for these three to see how they were influenced by Jesus' words by his message. And my hope is that those of us who follow Jesus, that we would take seriously Jesus' words as these three heroes did. Now, when I pitched this idea for a Christmas series to the teaching team, it's a little odd, I know, uh, but I grew up idolizing Dr. King. See, I was born the day after him. I was born on January 16th, and I, and I grew up wanting to be this combination of Dr. King and Andy Kaufman who was born the day after me. If you don't know Andy Kaufman, he was a comedian who was actually portrayed by another guy born on January 17th, Jim Carrey, in a film called Man on the Moon. And I wasn't sure what that would look like, this combination of Dr. King and Andy Kaufman. I just knew I wanted Dr. King's dream to come true, and I wanted to bring people together with laughter. And so growing up, I idolized Dr. King, and I was so fascinated to discover that so much of the civil rights movement was rooted in living out Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Nonviolent resistance was based on that. Last week, we looked at Gandhi and how he lived out the Sermon on the Mount. And Dr. King said this about Gandhi. As I delve deeper into the philosophy of Gandhi, my skepticism concerning the power of love gradually diminished. And I came to see for the first time that the Christian doctrine of love operating through the Gandhian method of nonviolence is one of the most potent weapons available to an oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. Today in our series, we're gonna look at how Jesus shaped Dr. King who helped shape our nation. Now in his last message, Dr. King, the night before he was assassinated, taught from a passage we're going to look at, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And during that message, he called people listening to develop a dangerous unselfishness like the Good Samaritan. So looking in Luke chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, well, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But you see, the religious expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? So it's important anytime you come to a passage of scripture to understand the context. And right here, what's happening is a religious expert is testing Jesus because he wants to justify himself. He'd seen Jesus hanging out with sinners, with prostitutes and tax collectors. And he was a religious expert, an expert in the law. So he wanted to justify himself. See, the danger that religious people fall into is judging themselves based on judging others. And then if we're not careful, we justify whatever we do because we feel we're better than other people. It's subtle, but it's dangerous, self-centered way of living. So the religious guy actually gives the right answer, love God and love others. But see, he wasn't interested in an uncomfortable change to actually doing these things. See, he was in church to feel good about what he was already doing. So Jesus understood his heart. He was trying to justify himself. That's why he asked, well, then who's my neighbor? That's the key to understanding this passage. See, the religious Jews despised Samaritans because they were racially intermixed between Jewish mother or father and a Gentile mother or father. And the religious hated that. They despised them. And so notice the twist that Jesus gives to the question. He continues and answers, well, then who is my neighbor by saying this in verse 30? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, what happened here is this religious leader had hatred in his heart based on prejudice towards Samaritans. Jesus knew that he was not living out what the law said, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says to him, start loving people that you judge. Not just love your Samaritan neighbor, but notice how in the story, the Samaritan becomes the hero. And what we see in the story is that you see two religious guys, a a priest and a Levite. Levites were those responsible for taking care of the temple. He, He says that two religious guys were walking down the road. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. A priest, a Levite, and Samaritan walk into a bar, right? But I need to pause here and, and just say that as we begin talking about Dr. King in our politically and religiously divided world, some of you might have trouble getting past some of the stories you've heard of Dr. King. 
And I don't want us to miss what Jesus has to say because we're listening through a political lens. Interestingly, Dr. King did not publicly affiliate with any political party. He said, I feel someone must remain in the position of non-alignment so that he can look objectively at both parties and be the conscience of both, not the servant or master of either. And I feel the same. I feel like we need to vote our conscience, but not serve politics, but serve the king of kings. But in some areas, Dr. King achieved great things because he lived a dangerously unselfish life. But King, like Gandhi, was not perfect. He made mistakes. We found out later that he had a secret life where he was unfaithful to his wife. And I can tell you, when I was a younger man and I found out about this, I was deeply troubled. I remember asking a a pastor in Los Angeles who had written a PhD on Dr. King, is this true that he was unfaithful to his wife? And he reminded me it's important not to idolize a person, but not to diminish the impact in one area, even as he may have struggled in others. And it reminds me of the heroes of the scripture. King David, Moses, Abraham, Peter, Paul, all of them made terrible mistakes, which should give us hope that no matter what mistakes we may have made, God can still use us to make a difference. At the same time, there's no reason for us to slip into the traps and temptations that would derail us and keep us from making that kind of impact. It's important that we not hide our struggles or even just sharing with one friend or or, or spouse. That's not enough, but but actually creating a, a framework of support around us to help us live this life. That's why the scriptures say, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you have people in your life that know what you're going through? Are there people that are entrusting their struggles to you? That's why we say at Gateway there are no perfect people allowed because we want us to live authentic lives, not what used to happen where you acted one way on Sunday and a completely different way on Saturday night. We want to be honest with where we're at so that we can experience transformation. Do you have these kind of relationships in your life? That's why we talk about serving others with others. I mean, that's why today we have four different opportunities to share a meal. If you live in Dripping Springs, you don't want to miss what's happening out in Dripping Springs today at two o'clock. If you're a parent with children, you don't want to miss lunch, our South by Next Gen. That's a chance to meet other parents. It's part of the Next Gen Network. Or if you're an entrepreneur or in business or a principal, a marketplace leader, we have lunch today at one o'clock or tonight after the six o'clock service, our 35 plus singles groups having dinner. These are opportunities to start getting to know people. But it's important to remember that only Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. The rest of us need the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross for us. And we need confessing community to help us heal from our own hypocrisy. So back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus comes across as harsh, perhaps, because he's trying to make a point to the religious, the people who think they have it all figured out. You say, love your neighbor, but you despise Samaritans and justify your lack of love and mercy. So why did the religious people in this story, the the priest and the Levite, why did they walk right past the wounded man? Maybe it was because they felt they were too important 
to get down into the ditch. Or maybe they were very busy. They, they just had other important things to do. Have you ever felt that way? Saw a need, but moved right past it because you just had other important things? John Burke, our senior pastor, told this great story. He was driving to uh, uh, an event at our North Campus, and he saw these teenage girls standing beside their car, obviously with a flat tire, and he drove right past them on his way to teach these pastors how to reach their community and had this thought, you should stop, but he didn't. And he kept going, and he had the thought again at the next light, you should turn around. He felt like God was impressing on him to turn around, but he didn't. He, he didn't want to be late to teach these pastors how to reach their community. And so he goes by the next street, has the same thought, keeps going. By the fourth turnaround, he finally turns around and goes all the way back. And he just prays, God, I, I'm going to be so late. I need you to take care of this, right? So he jumps out. These girls don't know what they're doing. He helps them change the tire. He gets to the meeting. He's 20 minutes late. And everything goes fine. But four years later, He's at Gateway North talking to Cheryl, one of the leaders for a ministry, one of our, our restore groups helping people find healing. And he asked her, how did you find Gateway? And Cheryl says, well, four years ago, my daughter had a flat tire and you stopped to help her. And for the first time in years, as she told me that story, I thought, you know what? We need to get connected to a church. Let's go to that one. Four years later, how often do we miss opportunities, promptings from God because we're just too busy, too self-important? What if we all decided to live dangerously unselfish lives with our time? Maybe these religious leaders were walking by this person who was wounded and hurt because they were afraid of what it would cost. They were afraid that it would cost too much money, it would take too much from them. Dr. King in that last message, the night before he was assassinated, as he unpacked this passage, he mentioned that that's actually the wrong question. How will this affect me is not the right question that we should be asking when we see a need. We shouldn't be asking, how will this affect me? The right question is, what will happen to this person if I don't do something? Do we live with that kind of mindset? Are we more worried about what will happen to me if I do this as opposed to what will happen to them if I don't? You see, that's what it takes for God to use us to bring life and freedom to the people oppressed by evil all around us. And evil is no less at work today than it was then. We need to learn to ask that question, what will happen to this person if I don't intervene rather than what will happen to me if I do? If you know the story of Dr. King, he grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 30s and 40s. And at age six, he lost access to his best friend, a little white kid, because of segregation, going to different schools. Dr. King grew up and experienced racism, segregation, discrimination. They were all socially enforced. Jim Crow laws were, in effect, enforcing segregation from everything from schools to water fountains and everything in between. These laws came into effect just after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in 1865. There were segregated waiting rooms and restrooms and building entrances, elevators, even amusement park cashier windows. Segregation was enforced at public pools and hospitals and jails. 
African-Americans could not live in white neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods even had warning signs saying, you are not welcome here. Marriage between whites and blacks was strictly forbidden. The Ku Klux Klan had grown up in this environment and lynchings were so prevalent in the 1920s and 30s that there were race riots as a result. Now, for those of us with grandparents or great-grandparents that grew up in the USA, that was their world. That was Dr. King's world. But his father traveled to Germany when Dr. King was five. And, and actually, his father's name was Michael King, and the, he was Michael King Jr., but he renamed himself and his son after the reformer Martin Luther. Prophetically, believing that his son could bring a change to his world, just as he sought to do the same. Now, Dr. King Jr. was extremely smart. He graduated with honors and enrolled in college at age 15. He went on to seminary and got a PhD in theology from, Baptist, from Boston University and he became a Baptist pastor. At the age of 25, he became a pastor of Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, age 25. It was in the second year that he was serving there as pastor that Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old black girl who'd been studying the story of Harriet Tubman, actually was ordered to get up from her seat on the bus and ordered to go to the back, but she refused. She had paid for her seat. It was her constitutional right to sit there. But the bus was stopped. Police came on and arrested this 15-year-old girl and took her off the bus. Dr. King investigated Claudette's case and began forming the idea of the nonviolent resistance encouraged by Bayard Rustin and others to look at what Gandhi did and how he applied Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, living out Jesus' words by facing down evil and injustice with love and kindness and non-resistance. Well, in 1955, Rosa Parks would be the second woman arrested for not giving up her seat on the bus, and Dr. King formed the Montgomery bus boycott. And 40,000 African-Americans boycotted the bus until discrimination stopped. It took over a year. But finally, segregation on the buses ended in Montgomery. Victory. One month later, Dr. King's house was bombed. Can you imagine? How would you respond? How would you feel? You're making progress and then people threaten the life of your family. So Dr. King addressed an angry crowd, pleading them to overcome evil with love and not to employ violence. People wanted to get violence and retaliation, and he challenged them not to, but instead to live out Jesus' teachings to love their enemies. Dr. King once said, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Do we think that way? That if I love and serve those who are against me, that it's the best way for me to be free, but also the best way to win that person? That's actually what Jesus taught us. Jesus warned us that we will be persecuted, that you will be and I will be hated. When we choose to follow him, we're choosing a life that's supposed to be dangerously unselfish. And when we do, it can change the world. Well, 13 years 
Over the next 13 years, God used the dangerous unselfishness of Dr. King and those he inspired to bring justice and freedom and opportunity to millions, bringing a new hope to our nation, a hope that we could actually live out what we professed in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, Jesus is the source behind that. We even see what happens in the early church as those who first saw Jesus alive after he'd been crucified. They began gathering in homes. And what happened is the story of Jesus was so compelling and so transformative that not only were Jews following Jesus as the Messiah, but pagan Gentiles were choosing to follow Jesus as well. And Jews and Gentiles had not gotten along. And so in these early churches... Paul, a church planter, wrote to them, reminding them of the heart of God for all people, for all nations, saying this in Galatians 3. Remember, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The early church was a remarkably different community where people from every background felt loved and had a place and had a voice like nothing else on the planet up until that point. Something that the church can be even now. Now, racism is an offense to God and a complete contradiction to the gospel. And this is what Dr. King believed and fought for because he saw it as integral to the message of Jesus. Jesus came that first Christmas to bring us all back to God from all nations and all socioeconomic backgrounds and all differences back into one family. Dr. King even said this, before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus, the hope we have for all nations. He says, this was my first calling and it still remains my greatest commitment. Well, if you know what happened in the late 50s, he met with Dr. Billy Graham who encouraged him and he formed a coalition of black ministers to work together to end segregation by nonviolent means. In 1958, he wrote his first book, and at a book signing, he was attacked by a delusional woman and almost killed. In 1960, King was arrested at a sit-in and sentenced to four months of hard labor. The next year, he was arrested for a desegregation campaign. The next year, jailed for a prayer vigil. And in 1963, while in jail, he wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, spelling out the spiritual and moral justification for fighting injustice because Jesus came with the gospel of freedom. And as Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to freedom everywhere. That same year, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom drew a crowd of 250,000 people on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to hear Dr. King's famous, what became his famous I Have a Dream speech. Which if you don't know the story behind the story, that wasn't originally what he was gonna share, but a singer behind him, a Haley Jackson, told him, tell him about your dream, tell him about your dream. And he deviated from his planned speech and went into these words, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Just think, in just 10 years, at the age of 35, Dr. King had so lived dangerously unselfish 
that a nation began to turn the tide. Civil rights legislation was drawn up, eventually passed in 1964, the same year that he won the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 35. Once again, victory. But violence and opposition increase. The next month, four black girls were killed when a bomb exploded in their church in Birmingham. Dr. King, still at the memorial, called for non-violence, even as the violence escalated. In March 7th, 1965, became known as Bloody Sunday as 600 marchers headed east from Selma to Montgomery, protesting for voting rights for African Americans. They got no further than six blocks before they were beaten with billy clubs and tear gassed and turned back. Undeterred, Dr. King and his dangerous unselfishness led the march again, causing federal judge Frank Johnson to give federal protection. And this time, instead of 600 marchers, there were 25,000. And even after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 were passed, seeing that it was weakly enforced, Dr. King and his wife and kids moved to the Chicago slums as an act of identification to fight for housing and education and equal opportunity. Another act of dangerous unselfishness. And here's what's beautiful. I've seen some of you do this in your life too. Maybe you've heard the story of the Hope Medical Clinic. Gloria and David McPherson been a part of Gateway for years. Before there was a Gateway South, David was playing bass guitar and Kathy, uh, his wife was helping Kathy Burke with the kids. And they had a dinner for a Bhutanese refugee who was helping other refugees. His name was John Monger. And during that dinner 12 years ago, Gloria, a physician, realized the need for medical care in the refugee community. And so she, at great cost to herself and her family, started the Hope Medical Clinic. Some of you have helped serve there. 650 refugees every year are served through your volunteering, through the sacrifices that Gloria and David McPherson have made. Or maybe you know Karen Davis. She went through our advanced workshop just a a few years ago and felt compelled to start a network to serve those who are living on the streets and want to get out of that situation. And so now some of you serve with her every Saturday under the bridge, serving coffee and pastries, giving your coats, giving toiletries. And now the Bridging Neighbors Network is taking on the Foundation Community Supper Club that was started by a life group that's been serving them once a month for the last 10 years with April Secting and Kelly Cotter. Or maybe you know Will Arnicky. Will has been setting up at Gateway South since Gateway South began. Setting up these chairs, knowing that people can encounter God in these chairs, some for the very first time. But along with Lee and others in his life group, they serve families in need. They, they put together the Fall Fest. They're here cleaning up the the parking lot, cleaning up this auditorium. And they don't even just clean right outside our space, but they clean the entire parking lot, Brad and Clay and Drew and others. I've referred to this group that will and lead lead as the backbone of our church. You may not always see them, but there is strength there. In fact, this is the group that's gonna feed us pancakes on the last Sunday of the year, December 29th. You are making a difference in the lives of our neighbors. You are making a difference. The simple acts of serving, the getting up early, the willingness to serve, it makes a difference. And so on that last night of his life, Dr. King was 
was speaking in the city of Memphis. Two sanitation workers in that city had died in dilapidated trucks. He was addressing the safety and and for fair wages and violence broke out and a 16-year-old girl was shot. Once again, Dr. King called for nonviolence, to love those who hate. And that night, his last message, 24 hours before he was assassinated, he said these words, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. He was referencing a nation that loved each other. Words spoken in the scriptures by Moses who could see the promised land but was not permitted to go in. Do you realize that God wants to change your life so that through your life you can see him change the lives of those you love? On Jesus' last night on earth, in his last message, he said this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay, one down, lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Dr. King said this about our relationship with Jesus. By opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we are to be transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. May we be transformed nonconformists. May we live lives that are unselfish, dangerously unselfish. And so I want to ask you, are you willing to do that? Live a dangerously unselfish life. What is God prompting you to do? What if we, as followers of Jesus, lived out what Jesus taught? The world doesn't need self-centered Christians. The world needs dangerously unselfish Christ followers. He's inviting us to be a part of bringing the change that our world so desperately needs. So how will you live dangerously unselfish in this season? We've given you some real practical things. One is taking one of these cards that you received when you came in. And I know when you think about inviting a neighbor or a coworker to come to our Christmas services, which we have four of them. They're on Sunday morning, the 22nd, and two on Christmas Eve. All the same service, all with Lex Land. It's gonna be an incredible time. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what will they think of me? Instead, I want you to ask this question. What can God do in them if they say Yes. And we talked about this last week, but what if we not only lived dangerously unselfish, but gave in a dangerously unselfish way? Take one of these cards and pray about giving above and beyond what you already are giving. If 10 families or individuals gave $3,400, we can make such a great impact in India. Or if 100 of us gave $340 more than we give, we can make such a great impact, not only in India, but in launching Gateway Buta Kyle and Gateway Dripping Springs. I came across this passage. I've been reading through uh, the scriptures and I was so convicted by this. In Deuteronomy 8, it says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good he has given you. But be careful not to forget 
to follow God in every way. Because when you are eating and satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You might end up saying to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I don't know about you, but Christmas ends up getting hijacked every year. There's so much to do, so much to buy. It's hard to think about the true meaning behind it. Uh, in my extended, extended family, the Bryants, we, we, a few years ago, so ridiculous, we decided to do a gift exchange of only gift cards. And it was literally like the most boring experience ever. It was like, all right, everybody, take your gift card and pass it to the right. All 20 bucks. And then people were literally trading for the one that they brought. It was ridiculous. I even saw a commercial the other day that says, buy yourself a car for Christmas because you deserve it. Not only are we giving to each other, we're giving to people who give us stuff. Now we're, just admit it, buy something for yourself this Christmas. But in this Christmas season, when God gave everything for us, what if we realigned how we lived our life, how we gave our money, how we spent our money, and considered what God do you want me to do? How can I live dangerously unselfish for you? And so I want to invite you in this moment just to pray with me and ask God to reveal to you what he would have you do in this season, how he would have you live, who he'd have you serve. So Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love us. You give us so much. And God, out of gratitude, may we live dangerously unselfish lives in every area of our life, that we would become people who die to ourselves and experience what you promised, Jesus, that if we lose our life in serving others, that's how we find our life. So God, if it means sacrificing a show we really love so that we can have one night a week to serve others with others, if it means sacrificing that extra trip next year so we can give to help people in India or help launch a new campus that will bring life and freedom to people that live near us. God, would you just show us the kind of life that's dangerously unselfish that you would have us live? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.